Good morning to all my subscribers. It is Valentine's Day, Wednesday, at least uh, Mountain Standard Time. Um, I hope you all have a good day. I know Valentine's every holiday can be weird, right? Um, but I've got to say, uh, if you just make it about love, uh, I think it can be pretty great. I'm sorry I didn't time this better. Um, I wish I had a love story for you. Instead, I have uh, one of the many stories in the collection Night Shift by Stephen King. And today's is Quitter's Inc. Um, there's a little bit of love in there, right? We've got uh, a husband and a wife um, who are willing to do a lot for each other. So, so we'll play on that a little bit. But for the most part, this story is really about addiction. Just for any listeners, um, this is The Barons, a Stephen King book club. Um, so if you're interested, you can read the article. If you're not interested in reading the article, then you can listen here. But just so you all know, this is not a reading of my article. This is extra um, off-the-cuff commentary that I like to give on Stephen King's stories. It's the things that I wish we could talk about if we were in a physical book club. We're not. So you get to hear me uh, rant to you about all the things I loved and hated. <laughs> I wish I could hear what you all what you all said and sounded like, but this is as close as we're getting for now. So if you're interested, grab a copy of Night Shift. And next week we are reading, let me flip to it. We are reading I Know What You Need. Okay, so let's get to it. So Quitters, Inc., we start this journey with Morrison sitting in Kennedy International waiting for his flight when he runs into an old friend, Jimmy McCann. Now, Jimmy looks great, and Morrison does not. Jimmy looks fit. He's happy. Morrison quickly finds out that he is the VP um, at his new job and that he is moving up in life. And Morrison is working hard. He's working long hours. He's flying all the time. He's smoking all the time. He's eating all the time. And he looks at, he doesn't look healthy. And so he asks him, you know, when did all this happen? And I'm going to read this to you because I like the way that King, he does this with a lot of male characters I've noticed. And maybe it's things that he felt, or maybe I'm reading into it. So, um, here we go. So he finds out, this is right after he finds out McCann is the VP of whatever company he works for. And he says, fantastic. Congratulations. When did all this, this happen? He tried to tell himself that the little worm of jealousy in his stomach was just acid indigestion. He pulled out a roll of antacid pills and crunched one in his mouth. Last August, something happened that changed my life. He looked speculatively at Morrison and sipped his drink. You might be interested. So right off, you know, we're maybe like five paragraphs in, and we've already got this guy who, you know, his life was basically crap. He goes on to tell uh, Morrison that my life wasn't great. I wasn't in good shape. I was having problems with my wife. My dad died. And then he gets diagnosed with an ulcer, and the doctor tells him he needs to quit smoking. And the line here, McCann says, might as well tell me to quit breathing. Morrison nodded in perfect understanding. Non-smokers could afford to be smug. 
He looked at his own cigarette with distaste and stubbed it out, knowing he would be lighting another in five minutes. Did you quit? He asked. Yes, I did. At first, I didn't think I'd be able to. I was cheating like hell. Then I met a guy who told me about an outfit over on 46th Street. Specialists. I said, what do I have to lose? And went over. I haven't smoked since. So kind of inane, right? Like, okay, this guy went and saw. My first thought was like, maybe it's hypnotists, I guess. You know, something like that. Um, McCann pulls out a card and gives it to him. Tells him, you know, if you're ever interested, head over to this place. Quitters Inc. is what it says. Stop going up and smoke. So, you know, Morrison did what most of us would do in that situation, sticks it in his wallet, and promptly forgets about it. The strangest part of the interaction is that McCann can't tell Morrison what they did. Morrison asks him a bunch of questions about it, you know, asked if if they, you know, made him smoke until he threw up or, you know, any of that. And he says, no, 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 I had to sign a contract. I actually can't tell you what they did, but just check it out if you're interested. And then he's off to his flight. So, like I said, Morrison, you know, has the card in his wallet for another month. And he's at another bar when it falls out of his wallet and onto the bar. And lo and behold, he's only two blocks away from Quitters, Inc. And it's another part of uh, King's stories that I like. Kind of like everything's like serendipity, but it's uh, not onto a good end. You know what I mean? Um, I just enjoy the way the cards kind of fall into place in his stories. And, uh, they seem, it seems like destiny. Basically these people are destined for a bad time. (laughs) So he goes in and it's in a nice new building, but it's just an office space. Um, takes an elevator and you know, the carpet's nice. And there's some men and women sitting in the reception area. There's shag carpet, which maybe that was fancy back then. Anyone who, uh, Anyone who was, you know, an adult or close to it during that time was shag carpet fancy because it features in a few stories here, the shag carpet. And I'm wondering if it's like a show of, uh, I guess, being like posh or hip or <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Anyway, he walks in, there's a receptionist, you know, typing on a nice new typewriter. And uh, this is kind of I don't know. I find it kind of cute because if you know anything about King, uh, you'll know that he started writing on a typewriter. I mean, there weren't a lot of, there weren't word processors when he was, you know, first starting out. And uh, the joke between him and his wife is she always said that he married her for her typewriter. And uh, yeah, when he accepted, I think it was the National Book Award, he he tells a a really funny story where he, he essentially says like, I mean, not really, but a little bit, you know? (laughs) Anyway, so he walks in and the receptionist is typing on the typewriter and he makes sure to mention that the clacks of the typewriter were very muted because it was an IBM. I just like that little little bit of writerly uh, gushing over typewriters right there. So she takes his address and he waits. And uh, as he's waiting, he's really jonesing for a cigarette. It says... um, And he sees that other people are too. He watches as a man pulls out his pack of cigarettes, looks around, sees that there are no ashtrays, and then puts the pack away again. Um, So he's, you know, leafing through a magazine, trying to distract himself, and he finally gets called back. And when he goes through the door, he finds himself um, in a little office 
He describes it as an austere little room, walled with drilled white cork panels. The only furnishings were a desk with a chair on either side. There was what appeared to be a small oblong window in the wall behind the desk, but it was covered with a short green curtain. There was a picture on the wall to Morrison's left, a tall man with iron gray hair. He was holding a sheet of paper in one hand. He looked vaguely familiar. Um, I do wonder, and I'm not sure, I wonder if that's Dale Carnegie, and we'll get to that later, but I don't know. Was Dale Carnegie tall? I didn't look that up before saying this because it kind of just came to me. Okay. So a man introduces himself. He's a heavyset man, and he says, I'm Vic Donati. If you decide to go ahead with our program, I'll be in charge of your case. So they do the usual. He asks questions, and he lets uh, Morrison know that they are not, you know, into self-help, that they are not going to trick him into stopping smoking, that they are simple pragmatists. And this word becomes important later. They're very pragmatic in their approach, meaning um, efficient, um, simple, uh, you know, like they're only going to do what works. So he says, we employ no drugs. We employ no Dale Carnegie people to sermonize you. Well, that kind of answers my question, doesn't it? It's probably not Dale Carnegie. We recommend no special diet and we accept no payment until you have stopped smoking for one year. My God, Morrison said. Mr. McCann didn't tell you that? No. How is Mr. McCann, by the way? Is he well? He's fine. Wonderful. Excellent. Now, just a few questions, Mr. Morrison. These are somewhat personal, but I assure you that your answers will be held in strictest confidence. He proceeds to ask if he has a wife and what her name is and if he loves her. And Morrison is, you know, thrown off by that question. And then he asks if he has a child, and Morrison says, yes, he's in private school. Um, it turns out his child is a special needs child with a low IQ who lives in a home of some kind. Um, and he does not want to tell Donati that. You get the sense that he's actually very ashamed of that. He even says... Um, to himself that he has half a child, which is kind of a bizarre thing to say. So um, anyway, he's sitting in the outer office after, you know, hearing that, that Donati guarantees that he will be able to quit smoking. Um, the next day, he's sitting in the outer office at three for a follow-up appointment. And he's kind of there to like it's almost like to prove that this won't work on him. That's the feeling you get. He's, he's thinking like, listen, I've tried to quit many times. It hasn't happened. And none of your weird magic is going to work on me. So in the end, it's something that Jimmy McCann had said, and it convinced him to keep the appointment. It changed my whole life. God knew his own life could do with some changing. And then there was his own curiosity before going up in the elevator, he smoked a cigarette down to the filter. Too damn bad if it's the last one, he thought. It tasted horrible. So he gets back into that same little office. Donati is so happy that he came. Um, he tells him that he's going to go ahead and start treatment. It's not hypnosis, like I thought, and Morrison thought it as well. I wonder if King knew that that's kind of where he was leading the reader. Um, 
Yeah, I thought it was going to be hypnosis gone wrong, but that's not what it is. He asks if uh, Morrison has any cigarettes with him. And when Morrison hands it over, it says, Donati put the pack on the desk. Then smiling into Morrison's eyes, he curled his right hand into a fist and began to pound. I'm sorry, and began to hammer it down on the pack of cigarettes, which twisted and flattened. A broken cigarette end flew out. Tobacco crumbs spilled. The sound of Donati's fist was very loud in the closed room. The smile remained on his face in spite of the force of the blows, and Morrison was chilled by it. Probably just the effect they want to inspire, he thought. And uh, so he gets a lot of pleasure out of it. So this is our first tip, like, uh, well, this guy's not totally all there. Um, He tells him it still pleases him to do that, even after three years in the business. Morrison's not really impressed. He thinks that this is like, you know, part of the treatment. And he says, uh, as a treatment and leaves something to be desired. There's a newsstand in the lobby of this very building and they sell all brands. And so Donati folds his hands, leans back and tells Morrison, your son, Alvin Dawes Morrison, is in the Patterson School for Handicapped Children, born with cranial brain damage, tested IQ of 46, not quite in the educable, retarded category. Your wife, how did you find that out? Morrison barked. He was startled and angry. You've got no goddamn right to go poking around my... We know a lot about you, Donati said smoothly. But as I said, it will all be held in strict disconfidence. So Morrison is understandably upset. He stands up. He wants to leave. But Donati convinces him to stay. Um, he's looking at him. He's, you know, he's not moved by this. He's seen it dozens of times, no doubt. So he explains why they know all this about him or why it's necessary by saying, I told you we were pragmatists here. As pragmatists, we have to start by realizing how difficult it is to cure an addiction to tobacco. The relapse rate is almost 85%. The relapse rate for heroin addicts is lower than that. It is an extraordinary problem. Extraordinary. And so what he's doing here is really buttering Morrison up so that he can, he's trying to elevate the problem so that his pragmatic solution doesn't seem so bad. It seems like it it matches the, the problem at hand. So he goes on to describe how even in prisons where men have been deprived of their freedom, of sex, of everything, if they do away with a cigarette ration, there will be riots. And then he talks about during World War I, when no one on the German home front could get cigarettes, the sight of German aristocrats picking butts out of the gutter was a common one. During World War II, many American women turned to pipes when they were unable to obtain cigarettes. A fascinating problem for the true pragmatist, Mr. Morrison. Morrison's getting impatient. He wants to know what the treatment is. And so Donati stands up and he parts these green curtains that he was sitting in front of. And there's a little window that looks into a bare room. And there's a rabbit on the floor eating pellets out of a dish. And I'll just read to you what happens here because it's a really, really good scene. Pretty bunny, Morrison commented. Indeed, watch him. Donati pressed a button by the windowsill. The rabbit stopped eating and began to hop about crazily. It seemed to leap higher each time its feet struck the floor. Its fur stood out spikily in all directions. Its eyes were wild. Stop that! You're electrocuting him! Donati released the button. Far from it. There's a very low-yield charge in the floor. Watch the rabbit, Mr. Morrison. 
The rabbit was crouched about ten feet away from the dish of pellets. His nose wriggled. All at once he hopped away into a corner. If the rabbit gets a jolt often enough while he's eating, Donati said, he makes the associ association very quickly. Eating causes pain. Therefore, he won't eat. A few more shocks, and the rabbit will starve to death in front of his food. It's called aversion training. So, Morrison is getting a look into what he signed up for, quite literally. He signed papers for this. He wants to get out. He asks Donati to unlock it. Donati tells him to sit down. So now he's starting to see that this is not something that's negotiable anymore. He's kind of signed his life away in some way to this man. And he looks into his eyes and he sees that his eyes were muddy and frightening. And Morrison has the thought that he's locked in there with a psycho and all he can think about is having another cig cigarette. So Donati tells him, let me explain this treatment in, no in more detail. But Morrison doesn't want to hear it. Unfortunately, the treatment has already begun, though. And so Donati tells him, listen, <laughs> this is how we're going to deal with your cigarette addiction. You said you really wanted to quit. And we're going to help you do that. So for the first month of the treatment, our operatives will have you under constant supervision. You'll be able to spot some of them, not all, but they'll always be with you. Always. If they see you smoke a cigarette, I get a call. And I suppose you bring me here and do the old rabbit trick, Morrison said. He tried to sound cold and sarcastic, but he suddenly felt horribly frightened. This was a nightmare. Oh no, Donati said. Your wife gets the rabbit trick, not you. You get to watch. So he's in a predicament and he learns that there is a sort of like tiered punishment system to Quitters Inc. So it's not just, you know, the little shock, low voltage shock that the rabbit got. There's actual steps to it. Um, and so he, he finds out that, you know, if, if for the first time your wife gets the little rabbit trick, yes, that's true. Um, the second time, you know, this happens the third time anyway. And he, uh, yeah, let me see. On a third offense, both of you would be... Yeah, okay. I'll read this to you guys. The treatment was chillingly simple. A first offense, and Cindy would be brought to what Donati called the rabbit room. A second offense, and Morrison would get the dose. On a third offense, both of them would be brought in together. A fourth offense would show grave cooperation problems and would require sterner measures. An operative would be sent to Alvin's school to work the boy over. Imagine, Donati said, smiling, how horrible it will be for the boy. He wouldn't understand it, even if someone explained. He'll only know someone is hurting him because daddy was bad. He'll be very frightened. So as you can imagine, this is pretty horrifying for Morrison. And it seems like there's no way out of it. And the final, the final step, at the 10th tier, if he still is smoking, so 10 times, if he gets caught smoking 10 times, he'll be killed. And Donati smiles at him and says, but even the unregenerate 2% never smoke again. We guarantee it. So that's where the guarantee comes from. Not because they're, uh, not because they're like helping you in the ways that I thought, like hypnosis or something, but in the sense that uh, they'll kill you if you can't quit. So he sleeps badly. He's jonesing for a cigarette. He even goes to his office inside of his house 
He's wondering how would they ever know, but he does not smoke. And in the morning, his eggs actually taste better. And you start to notice this theme in the story that he is actually getting better because he's not smoking. Like, you know, he's feeling better. He's having a better time with his family because he's not just thinking about smoking all day. Um, and he starts to do better at work. He ends up, uh, you know, getting a promotion, etc., etc. But he does slip up at one point. He's driving home in traffic. He finds some cigarettes in the ashtray and he smokes it a little bit. And when he gets home, his wife is not home. And he gets a phone call. And it's who else but Mr. Donati, right? And uh, he asks him to come into the office. And sure enough, they have made true on their promise. They have electrocuted his wife. But she is just, after he tells her why and what's going on, she's actually thrilled. And she says, I understand. And, um, you know, at first I was like, this is kind of a weird reaction to have. But then I thought, you know, it's kind of a true reaction of most people who have loved ones who are addicts in any way. Um, when you know someone is killing themselves, you would probably withstand a little bit of electric shock if it meant that it was going to help them quit. And so I think it actually tracks when I, when I thought about it. Um, and his life continues to improve. You know, he, uh, he goes and sees his son um, he enjoys it more than he has in a long time. And I, I think there's a little bit of commentary on um, sobriety possibly here. Like maybe even it was on King's mind. Like how would I feel if I, because at the time that he wrote this, he was in the throes of addiction. He was an alcoholic. He was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. He was doing cocaine. At, at its worst, he was even drinking Listerine, NyQuil. Um, he said anything that would alter his consciousness, Xanax, Valium, um, he was a true addict. He would just take, you know, cocktails of drugs. And so anyway, I wonder if some of this is his own, you know, reaching for what it would feel like to not be on a substance and to experience life that way. And if there would be more joy in it. So anyway, um, he gets another call from Donati some months later. Um, I'm sorry, a week later. And uh, he calls him in and, you know, notices that he's gained weight. So he weighs him. He says, okay, I'm going to set a max weight for you. We're going to set it at 182. And he prescribes him illegal diet pills um, and tells him, you know, if you don't make this weight, this is what's going to happen. We'll send someone out to your house to cut off your wife's little finger. You can leave through this door, Mr. Morrison. Have a nice day. So now Jimmy McCann, the the man that Morrison ran into in the airport, it makes sense that he's fit because this guy is going to, you know, in true mob style, uh, cut his wife's finger off if he doesn't stay fit. <laughs> so anyway, everything's starting to make sense with Jimmy McCann and why he's doing so well in life, right? Uh, eight months later, Morrison hands this card to another guy who says, you know, you look amazing. How did you do it? I could never stop smoking. And so it goes on and on. Interesting, right? The Morrison would hand that card over even though he's being totally terrorized. So he gets a bill a year later, right? Just like they promised because he successfully quit. And his wife kisses him and says, just pay it because it's extremely expensive. But she's happy with results. 
The story ends with this nice little paragraph. 20 months later, Morrison and his wife meet the McCanns at Helen Hayes Theater. And they're all talking and introducing themselves to one another. And everyone is, is happy, blah, blah, blah. And then she offers her hand and Morrison shakes it. There is something odd about her grip. And halfway through the second act, he realizes what it was. The little finger on her right hand is missing. Now, I know I'm, I'm probably reading into this too much, but I'm, I'm going to anyway. I think it's interesting that King ends this story that way because I wonder if he was maybe thinking about sobriety or maybe writing really about how hard it is to quit and how even with such high stakes, like I'm going to cut your wife's finger off, um, it's hard to not eat too much. It's hard to stop smoking. It was hard for him to stop drinking, to stop using cocaine. Um, and he has some great quotes in On Writing where he writes really candidly about his addiction. And in the article, I've included the, the direct quote from On Writing. But, um, you know, it was in the early 80s, I think, that he says that he finally got to see how much beer he drank in just like three or four days. And it was like, you know, dozens, dozens and dozens of beers in just a, a matter of a couple of days. And by the time Tabby came to him, that's his wife, Tabitha King, by the time she came to him, um, she brought, she had an intervention because they were watching him kill himself, essentially. And she brought um, his close friends and his children in with a garbage bag filled with, you know, empty beer cans and cigarette cartons and empty Valium bottles and Xanax bottles and, uh, you know, bags of cocaine and Coke spoons with snot and blood dried on it. I mean, it was like, it's a very bleak picture, NyQuil and Listerine and, you know, all the things that he was poisoning himself with. And she dumped it out on the, on his desk or on the floor. I can't remember. And she told him, we love you, but we're not going to watch you do this you know, slow form of suicide. So you can either get sober or get out of the house. And I think she said, or get the hell out, <laughs> uh, which is very, if you know anything about Tabby, um, seems very Tabby King. Um, and King then <laughs> is in on writing. He says that he said something to the effect of I bargained because that's what ag addicts do. I was charming because that's what addicts are. And in the end, I asked for two weeks to think it over. And, you know, that's like such an intense, like it mirrors this story, right? Where it's like in this story, it's very physical and, and, you know, kind of caricatured where it's like either you do this or your wife and son get hurt. And it's like, there's still a chance that he won't do it, you know? And in this case, it was either quit or you're not going to see your children grow up. And he was like, let me think about that for a couple of weeks. It's like... But anyone who's struggled with addiction or watched someone struggle with addiction knows that that is a real, there's a real possibility that he would have chosen, and I think many people do, that he would have chosen to keep drinking, to keep using drugs, um, and especially because this was tied up in his mind with creativity. And he says in the end, what made him decide to quit was that he realized that similar, if you've read Misery, you'll know that Annie Wilkes, the nurse in that is forcing Paul Sheldon, her, you know, favorite writer to write a book for her. And it's like under threat of death, she's forcing him 
to write. And he says that cocaine was like that for him. He says that he was sick of having an Annie Wilkes there driving him to produce and create, but he wasn't actually in the driver's seat. And I thought that was a really powerful picture. Um, and especially because drug use and addiction is rampant in creative communities. Um, it's something that a lot of people use to stimulate creativity, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think for a lot of artists, it starts that way, but it can end up with you in the backseat and addiction just <laughs> driving the car, you know? And I think that I, I just appreciate the way that he phrased that so much that he had essentially grown up with that image of sensitive men like Hemingway, he says, who are sensitive, but they can't be because they're men. And so they have to drink. So you can see like all the things that played into the psychology behind King's addiction. And fascinatingly, cigarettes were the last to go as they are with a lot of addicts. So he quit drinking and he quit drugs and it took two more years for him to finally quit smoking. And I don't know that he completely quit at that point. I think he went from two packs a day to three cigarettes a day. I believe at this point that he's completely um, clean of cigarettes. And I, I think I read that he doesn't even drink coffee anymore. So um, I think for some people, it can be that extreme where they, they don't want to have anything influencing their, their consciousness when they've had a relationship with substances like that. So suffice it to say, when I read this story, I, I couldn't help but think about King's own journey and where he was at when he wrote that, which is right in the middle of full-blown addiction. Um, and I can't help but think that that ending is a little picture, like the fear that he had that maybe nothing could stop him from doing drugs, from drinking, from smoking. Um, we know that his story ended differently. So on that note... I'm going to wish you all a happy Valentine's Day. Um, next week, we are going to be reading... Why can I not remember this story name? Ah, I keep having to open it up. Yeah, next week, we are going to be reading... You can hear my pages flipping. I Know What You Need. And the week after that is Children of the Corn, which is why I chose this... Yeah, it's why I chose this collection, actually, because I, I saw the movie when I was a kid and I wanted to uh, to read the, the short story that inspired it. So we are almost done here. Um, after we finish this collection in another like three or four stories, so three or four weeks, we are going to be switching to our long form book club again. And I think I'm going to throw in other horror authors. So let me know what you all think about that. Um, I think I'm going to change it up. I've been reading really good short story collections. Uh, one was edited by Jordan Peele, Out There Screaming. If you have not read that, I highly recommend it. I think I'm going to start um, reviewing and, you know, hosting um, book club posts and, and podcasts, going over stories in that collection. Um, I'm going to write about Castle Rock in the near future. I'm late to that party, but I am loving that show. It's on Hulu. If you have never heard of it, it is essentially a spinoff based on characters and places in Stephen King's novels and short stories. And um, they just are, it's wonderfully creative and kind of a new look at old characters that I'm, I'm really enjoying. There's tons of Easter eggs. It's like kind of a Stephen King fan paradise. So I will be writing about that. And um, I think our next 
long form novel. I'll have to double check, but I think we're doing Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which is, I believe, a Richard Bachman book when King was writing under his uh, pen name. So we have a lot of really good stuff coming up. I'm excited to be done with Night Shift. Um, I think I've gotten like my fill of 1960s and 70s King um, and not in a bad way. I just, I'm excited to kind of like, you know, try on some different stuff. So I hope that you will hold on with me. We've got such good stories um, to, to finish. And then, like I said, we're going to start to throw in some new contemporary horror authors. Um, so I look forward to seeing you all next week. I hope you have a great day. Happy Valentine's Day. May it be filled with, um, with love and horror, if that's your thing. <laughs> and I'll see you guys next week.